Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Your father promised you that he would take you fishing Sunday, but something came up and he didn't. Your mother promised you that she would wash your favorite shirt for school, but she forgot. The doctor's office said that your appointment was for 2 o'clock, but you didn't get in until 2.45. The mechanic promised that the car would be ready by Tuesday, but after not getting it for two more days, you began to wonder if he meant Tuesday of next week. He promised to divorce his wife and marry you. Well, he divorced his wife all right and married his secretary. She stood at the altar and vowed that she would be faithful until death, separated the two of you. She was faithful until David came between the two of you. Have you ever had someone promise you something and not do it? It makes you wonder just about how men and women keep their promises, and even beyond that, about how God keeps his how good are God's promises? Is he as good as his word? His promises promise to protect us. Have you ever felt that he did not protect you? He promises to answer prayer. Have you ever felt like he let you down? And how about the future? And what about heaven? He promises eternal life to those who trust his son, Jesus Christ. How good is that promise? Some say it's as good as your good behavior. If that's the case, what do you have to say about God's promises? That's what I want us to talk about, the promises of God. In the Old Testament, a man named Abram received several promises from God. After receiving one of them, he asked how good the promises of God were, and God dramatically answered his question. So, let's look at the case of Abraham to see how good God's promises really are. Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 15? Instead of reading the whole chapter, which we're going to look at, I'm going to just read it piecemeal as we unwrap it verse by verse. So let's begin with simply the first verse where Abram has a vision. We're told in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now what is important is that you notice that little phrase at the beginning of the verse, After these things. Things. If you'll recall, in the previous chapter, he went after kings of the east in order to re rescue his nephew, Lot. He conquered them, uh, refused to take 
the spoils, even from Sodom, which is one of the kings he rescued, and took nothing. As a matter of fact, he gave 10% to Melchizedek, the king priest in what later became the city of Jerusalem. So after these things, after him not accepting the spoils of war, not accepting some of the spoils from even the king of Sodom, after all of that, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now let's pause there for just a second, and let me point out that there's a difference between a dream and a vision. A dream is something that you have at night. A vision is something that you experience in the uh, daytime. So this is not a dream that he had at some night while he was asleep. It was a vision that he experienced sometime during the day. So the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. And here's what the Lord said in that vision. Do not be afraid. Now, why would he have to give Abram that message at this particular time in his life? What was there to be afraid of? And the answer is, he just conquered all those kings from the east, and they were known that day for retaliation. So Abram had everything to fear after that waging war and winning it, that they would come back and retaliate. And so the Lord comes to Abram and says, don't be afraid. And he means, of course, of retaliation. Then he says this, I am your shield. Why should I not be afraid of them? Because I am going to be your protection. I'm going to protect you from those kings. Then he says this, he says, and I'm your exceedingly great reward. Now you've got to read this in the context of the previous chapter. He just gave up an enormous amount of wealth. And so the Lord says, I am going to be your reward. Not the material gain that you would have had from conquering those kings, but me, personally, I am going to be your reward. And look at what he says, your great reward. I'm going to be greater than anything you would have received had you taken the spoils of war. And then he adds on top of that, I'm going to be your exceedingly great reward. So how would you like to have the Lord as your reward. In the context of the life of Abram, this is particularly interesting. If you'll recall, if you've been following as we've been tracking Abram through the book of Genesis so far, you'll remember that there was a conflict between Abram and his nephew Lot. And Abram said, tell you what, you pick the piece of property you want and I'll take the rest. And Lot chose the best part, which got him in trouble, by the way. And uh, that was what that whole conflict was about with the kings of the east. 
But after that, the Lord came to Abram and said to him, I am going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you descendants like you can't imagine. I'm going to give you more descendants than the grains of sand on the beach. Now, Abram gives up the spoils of war. And the Lord comes to him and he says, I am going to be your reward. That is just staggering. I am going to be your exceeding great reward. So Abram is called later the friend of God. Abram was God's friend. He wanted the Lord more than he wanted anything else. He didn't want what the world had to offer him, even though he had the right to it. He just wanted the Lord. There's a verse in James that says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. To make yourself a friend of the world, to want what they want, to have your needs met from them, is to be God's enemy. But suppose you became the friend of God, not the friend of the world. Then what do you get? Not God's enemy, you become God's friend, and he becomes your reward. Let me say that same thing another way. When you reject the friendship of the world to meet your needs, to be your reward, then your reward is intimacy with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord that can be called being a friend. And that's more valuable, I submit to you, than the spoils of war of five wealthy kings. This is an incredible verse. Abram, I'm going to be your reward. Which would you choose? The spoils of war or the friendship of God? So that's how the passage opens. Then the Lord says this, verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, to appreciate what's happening here and why this has come up at this point, you've got to remember something I alluded to just a few minutes ago. And that is that God promised Abram prior to this, what? Descendants. So what does that mean? You are going to have a son. And so Abram says, Lord, you, you said you're going to be my reward. Well, you've already promised something else, and you haven't come through on that promise. So let me make a suggestion. I have a servant over here, Eliezer of Damascus. Why don't we make him my heir? I mean, you promised me an heir, 
So let, let him be the substitute since you haven't seen fit to give me uh, a natural heir. Now actually what Abram's suggesting isn't far-fetched according to the rules of that day. That is, it was appropriate for a man if he left wealth and didn't have a son for that wealth to go to his servant. So Abram's simply suggesting something that would have been the norm at that time. But God promised him an heir, a natural-born heir. So this doesn't fit the bill at all. This doesn't fulfill God's promise, though Abram's willing to settle. So the issue becomes, how good is the promise of God? You promised, and you haven't fulfilled the promise yet. So just how good are your promises? Well, here's what the Lord says. Verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, God said, Abram, nice try, won't work. That is not what I promised you. That is not what I'm going to settle for. I told you that you were going to have an heir, and it's going to come from your body. So your servant will not fulfill the promise. Now, let me just reiterate. Apparently at this point it's night. He says, come on outside. I want to show you something. Look up in the sky. Can you count those things, those stars? That's how your descendants are going to be, as the stars of heaven. Now, to really appreciate this, you need to back up just a chapter or two to chapter 13 and look at verse 16. Genesis 13, 16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be counted. Now, Genesis 13, 16, and Genesis 15, 5, are both promising Abram descendants. Innumerable descendants. You can't count them all. In chapter 13, the illustration is as of the dust, the granules of sand on the beach of the earth. And in chapter 15, uh, it's the stars. So he's using two illustrations to impress upon Abraham, I mean to give you descendants that's coming from your body, and they're going to be beyond anything you can imagine or even count. Many Bible teachers have looked at this and said, hmm, that's interesting. As the dust and as the stars. 
Is there some significance to that? The earth and the heaven? So many a Bible teacher has suggested that Abram has two kinds of seed. One is physical, dust of the earth, the Jewish race. And one is spiritual, the stars of the heavens. Those outside of the Jewish race who come to know the Lord. Paul argues that second point in the book of Galatians and later in the book of Romans, that Abram's going to have two kinds of descendants, physical descendants and spiritual descendants. Those who are born of the Jewish race or of his physical descendants, and those who have faith, which I'll get to in a minute, are his spiritual descendants. Now, I want you to skip verse 6. I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. And I want you to look at verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now, I want you to look at verse 5. So shall your descendants be. Now look at verse 7. To give you this land as an inheritance. These are the two things God promised Abram. He promised Abram the land of Palestine, and he promised him innumerable descendants. And from the very beginning, when he called him out of Ur, this was the promise that God gave him that is simply repeated here. Two things, land and descendants. Granted, those descendants, some are physical, some are spiritual, but there are two basic uh, promises of the land and of the descendants. Now, I skipped a verse. One of the most important verses in all of the book of Genesis. One of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. One of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Read and note carefully Genesis 15.6. And he believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, first of all, we have to understand this verse in its context. What was it he believed? Well, if all you did was, if all you had was this chapter, you would say, well, he believed the promise God gave him in verse 5, that I'm going to give you descendants. Uh, that no doubt is included. He believed the Lord about that. But there's more involved, and we know that for two reasons. One is that the Hebrew text could be, should be, translated, uh, he, he had believed in the Lord. In other words, this verse is not saying this is the first time he believed. It's saying, as one Hebrew professor said to me when I was in seminary many years ago, he was in the state of faith. Now, we know that not just because we 
translate the verse a little differently out of the Hebrew text, but just read your Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, he believed God to leave Ur. So clearly, this verse is teaching that Abram was in a state of faith. He had believed the Lord prior to this, and so he believed the Lord on this occasion. In that prior act of faith, it says God took that faith and credited him with righteousness. That is, Abram had faith, and God declared him righteous, not because he was, but solely because he had faith. Incredible. You come before the Lord as a sinner, unrighteous, ungodly, and you say, I trust you, and God says, you know what? I'm going to declare you righteous. Just because you trusted me. I'm going I'm to put to your account righteousness. Look at the verse. He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It's an accounting term. The Lord said, you trusted me? I'm going to put a balance in your bank book. And the balance is righteousness. All you did was trust me? I'm going to put in your balance sheet righteousness. Just because you trusted me. Wow. What a concept. Now, this is the doctrine of justification by faith. One of the most important doctrines in all of the Bible. In the book of Galatians, again in the book of Romans, Paul argues for justification by faith, and he quotes this verse. The writer to the Hebrews quotes this verse. This is a very, very important verse. It is the basis of justification by faith, and it's introduced in Genesis 15, 6 for the first time. Now, let me uh, talk about this for a second. There are two views about what justification means. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that justification is God makes you righteous. So whether or not you go to heaven depends on God making you righteous. What the Protestant Reformation was all about is Martin Luther declared, no, God does not make us righteous, he declares us righteous. When we simply have faith at that moment, he declares you are righteous. Then the process starts of God trying to produce righteousness in you as you obey him. But the basic idea of justification is I am declared righteous, not made righteous. That's incredible. That, that's, that's very important, folks. That's why it is we're going to make it to heaven in the first place. Not that we are righteous or that God makes us righteous, is that he declares us righteous. When I was first introduced to this concept, when I was a very young Christian, 
I looked at the Bible and I thought, how in the world do you get that out of this? Uh, the Bible just says, you know, you're justified. How do you know that means declared righteous and not made righteous? That's a huge theological debate. Huge. As big as it comes. Started the whole Protestant Reformation. How did you get that out of that verse in Romans? And then one day, a Bible teacher shared with me how you know that. Put your finger in Genesis. We're coming back. And look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is talking about a dispute between two Jewish people in the Old Testament who come before a judge. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1 says, If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judge may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So there are two men having a dispute, and they come before the judges in Israel. And the judges does what? He justifies the righteous. Now think about that for a second. Did he make the righteous righteous or declare the righteous righteous? He didn't make the righteous righteous. He was righteous. He declared it. That is the doctrine of justification by faith. When you trust Jesus Christ, God declares you are righteous. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. You are declared righteous. Wow. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we're told, Noah found grace. That was chapter 6, verse 8 and was pronounced righteous. Now, we are told that Abram believed and was considered righteous, chapter 15. So just from Genesis, you could figure out that grace and faith come before righteousness. And isn't that what Paul said in the New Testament? That grace is God's act, of giving his son to die for our sins and be raised from the dead, and faith is man's response, but both are necessary. So for by grace are you saved through faith. That's not just in Ephesians 2.8, that's in Genesis 6, 7, 1, and 15.6. It's all there. Noah got saved by grace, he was declared righteous, Genesis 17.1, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. So all we can do is come with an empty hand and receive the gift of eternal life. By trusting in Jesus Christ, God says, I declare you righteous. Spurgeon said, A trembling hand may grasp the cup which bears the healing uh, draft of the, uh, to the lip. But the weakness of the hand shall not lessen the power of the medicine. Ah, I come to the Lord with an empty hand, and the way I get saved is what's in the cup, not what's in my hand. 
or my grasp of it. So, Genesis 15.6 is one of the most important verses in all the Bible because it establishes the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification. Declared righteous. Write that down. Most people don't understand justification. Justification doesn't mean I'm innocent. It means I'm righteous. I have the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Solely by faith. As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. It's quoted by James in chapter 2, verse 23. And it's quoted by the book of Hebrews. So Moses, Paul, James, and the writer to the Hebrews all quote this verse. Thus Abram clarifies the promises that God gave to him. We sometimes blame God because we thought he promised something he didn't. He's always good to clarify exactly what he said he would do. So this is the promise. I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to declare you righteous. But how do we know? Well, that's what Abraham brought up. All right, you promised me the land. You promised me descendants. You've declared me righteous. How do I know? Look at verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Underline it, that's the point of this chapter. How do I know? Now, it sounds like he's doubting the Lord. That's not quite what's going on here. How do you know that? Because verse 6 says he believed God. So just two verses earlier it says he believed. So it's not doubting. Well, then it's not doubting. What is it? He's asking for assurance. He's saying, how good is your promise? I want assurance. So the Lord says, all right, I'm going to give it to you. Pick it up at verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-male ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought him all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So, very simply, God said, bring me five different animals and cut them in two. And he cut them in two. Now, this was a Chaldean practice, that if you made an agreement with somebody, the way you firmed it up, is you cut an animal in two, and both of you walk through it. The idea being that if you ever broke that covenant, you'd be just as dead as that animal. So the Lord says, bring me the animals. And then he says, and when the vultures come, verse 11 on the Caucasus, Abram drove them away. Some want to say that's the nations that are going to attack Abram, and they're not going to succeed. Now it says, 
In verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Uh, Some say that this is uh, a foreshadowing of the trouble that the descendants of Abraham are going to encounter in that that they're going to end up in Egypt. So there's trouble coming. At any rate, Abram is asleep. That is important. It's very, very, very important. Now, read verse 13. Then he said to Abram, No, certainly. Now back up, verse 8. How shall I know? Verse 13. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Now the question is, when are you going to give me descendants that are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven? And he says, well, four hundred years. And in the meantime, you are going to suffer. That's the point. You're going to be strangers in a land that is not yours. I promised you this land, but before that comes to pass, your descendants are going to dwell in a land that is not theirs. Wow. Now, he says uh, in this passage, also the nations whom they serve, I will judge Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. All right? You're going to dwell in Egypt, and when you come out, you're going to have a lot of wealth that you got from the Egyptians. And as we know, that is exactly what happened. But you are going to suffer first, but that's going to take 400 years. By the way, this is a little chronology, but we know... Uh, from the chronology of the Bible, that the Exodus was in 446 B.C. Some want to say 445, 447. It's somewhere right in there. Uh, 1450, that's the idea. This is 400 years prior to that. So based on that, we can date this at around 1850. And it's probably round numbers because some passages say 430, But roughly, this is around 1850 B.C. Very rough. At any rate, God says, uh, I'm going to promise you trouble. Your descendants are going to have trouble. They're going to live in a land that doesn't belong to them. I'm promising you trouble. Verse 15. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You should be buried at a good old age. This is an incredible verse. There's very few references like this in the Old Testament. But they're there. Abram, you're going to live to be an old man. You're going to die in peace. I'll get to that in a second. But when you die, you're going to go with your fathers. Now what is that saying? You're going to go to heaven. In the Old Testament. Genesis 15. You're going to go to be with your fathers. But in the meantime, you're going to die in peace. Now what does that imply? What's this whole chapter about? When are you going to give me descendants? Well, you're going to die knowing you got them. You're going to know 
that you have a natural born son before you die, and you're going to be able to die in peace. So, Abram is told that he's got to wait 400 years. He's going to see that he has a descendant, at least one, and they are going to be into trouble. Now, why did God wait 400 years? And we are told because the cup of the Ammonites was not yet full. God gave the current inhabitants of the land of Palestine time to turn to him, time to repent. He gave them 400 years. Remember Noah? How much time did the Lord give that generation? 120 years. So he's very patient not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, according to Peter. He's giving them plenty of time, and in the meantime, uh, Israel is going to have to wait for the fulfillment of the promises of God. He says that in verse 16. But in the fourth generation, you'll return here, for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete, and that's what I just explained to you. Now read verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, and the rest of the passages names the current occupants of that territory. By the way, where's Abraham doing this? What happened to Abraham earlier in the passage? He's asleep. So does Abraham get to walk through the two cut animals? No. But that was the custom. The two who made an agreement walked through it together, right? But that didn't happen. A burning went through there, representing God as a God of fire. The Lord walked through these two animals, the two halves, by himself. And the verse says, verse 18, he made a covenant. So, God says, all right, Abram, I'm going to tell you how you're going to know. I'm going to make a covenant with you, and it is a blood covenant. And I'm going to make it with you, and I'm the only one making it. You don't have to do anything. You're not walking through the I'm the only one walking through the animals. This is incredible. This is a poor illustration because it isn't perfect. But this is like somebody laying their hand on the Bible and saying, I swear. This is like somebody signing a document and having a notary public authorize it. This is God making a contract and a covenant with Abram. Only it's a whole lot greater than all of that. You may have heard me say there are three types of covenants in the Old Testament. One was the shoe covenant. We're going to make an agreement. I'm going to give you one of my shoes, and you're going to give me one of your shoes. And that covenant is as binding as long as I have your shoe and you have my shoe. But I could get my shoe back. The other was a salt covenant, referred to in Ruth chapter 4, where everybody carried a little bag of salt around. I'm going to take pinches of my salt and put it in your bag, and I'm going to take pinches of your salt and put it in my bag. 
that covenant is good as long as I got your grains of salt and you got my grains of salt. But the best covenant is a blood covenant. We're going to kill animals. We're going to shed their blood. And that covenant is good until the blood flows back through the veins of those animals. And not just one, but multiple animals. Now that is as dogmatic and firm a covenant as you can possibly make. God made it alone, meaning it is unconditional. This is the way it is. By the way, after um, Alexander the Great died, there was a great battle over who was going to take his place. Uh, The guards, uh, some of the guards were against the army, and they finally came to an agreement, and they settled it by doing just this very thing, dividing an animal and both walking through it. So this was a very ancient custom. Now, the Lord says, I'm going to give you the land, and he lays it out from the river of Egypt, And there's a problem with exactly what river that is. But to the river of Euphrates, there's no question about that one. The river of Euphrates is either the Nile or a smaller little river in Gaza. It's probably Gaza. There are other passages that talk about this. But this is the point. Israel has never permanently occupied that piece of real estate. From the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. So what does that mean? The Lord's got to come back and give it to them. And they're not going to have it until that happens. So, God promised Abram protection. I'll be your shield. Countless descendants as the stars of the sky and the dust of the earth. And the land. And the land provision he sealed with a covenant. God promises are as good as his word. He's willing to make a covenant and put it in writing and he will stake his life on it. It's as solid and secure a covenant as you can make in the ancient world and until this day. So let me conclude by just making a couple of observations. God promises to justify those who trust him. Romans chapter 3 spells that out very clearly. And he made a covenant to confirm it. It's called the new covenant, and we commemorate it when we commemorate the Lord's Supper. That's the covenant that secures and seals and settles our justification by faith. Secondly, God promises protection. Yet, there will be affliction. I'm going to protect you, but your descendants are going to have to go to a land that isn't theirs. So he promised Abraham protection against the eastern kings and yet prophesied his descendants would suffer affliction. Both protection and suffering are his plan. If you believe that God always protects, you will be disappointed and maybe even disillusioned when he doesn't protect you. Suffering does not mean that God has broken his promise. It means he's kept it. He promised us there'd be trials and tribulations. Paul said, through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom of God. God's people can rely on his promises even if they have to experience suffering and death before they experience the promises of God. So God promises to protect us 
and God promises to allow us to go through affliction. Thirdly, God promises us future glory. He promised the physical descendants of Abraham that they would inherit the land. And he confirmed that promise with a covenant. But they have never fully, permanently possessed the land, as I said a moment ago. That provision still awaits a little fulfillment in the future. Believers today are promised future glory. And they will not inherit the physical land, but they are not the physical descendants of Abraham. So God promised all believers that they would be blessed with all spiritual blessings. So God promises us justification, protection, tribulation, and future glory. The question is, how good are God's promises? And Abraham is the great illustration. He experienced some of those promises during his lifetime, namely justification, and eventually he got a son, Isaac. And he experienced some of those promises after he died. So, likewise, we experience some of God's promises in this life justification, protection, affliction. And we promise, we experience some of the promises of God after this life in future glory. So how good are the promises of God? The answer is, as good as a written contract or to say the same thing, as good as the character of God himself. Matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says that when he could swear by no other, he swore by himself. So it's as good as the character of God. It's as good as his word. I'm going to close by telling you just how good God's promises are. You want to know? Turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. And look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now the covenant returned to in verse 32 is the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant. But now he says I'm going to make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquities and their sins, and I will remember them no more. Thus saith the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day 
the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, for the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart, stop. We're talking about the shining of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says, if those should ever stop, if the sun should stop shining and the moon should stop reflecting its light, if the stars should fall from heaven, that's his point, before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. I said Israel is going to be a nation before me forever, and it's as good as the sun in the sky, the moon in the sky, and the stars in the sky. And I might remind you that we partake of that new covenant when we trust Christ and commemorate it with the Lord's Supper. So how good is the promises of God? As good as the rising sun, that's how good it is. That's as good as it gets. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your awesome promises to us. That you promised us eternal life. You promised us justification by faith. You promised us that nothing could take that away from us. You promised us blessings in this life, including trials. And Lord, we thank you that those promises are settled, sealed, and secure based on your character and illustrated by the sun, the moon, and the stars. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.